Okay, I know we're a few minutes early, um, but just for those of you who are already here, I just wanted to let you know ahead of time, welcome to the talk. My name is Michelle Tepper. I um, am a part of RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. We are a ministry that exists to help the thinker believe and the believer think, and we get the privilege of traveling around the world and engaging with people's hardest questions of life and faith in God. I'm kind of giving this notice a little, a few minutes early because did any of you go to any of our speakers' events at two o'clock yesterday? Any of them? Yeah, quite a few. So you know that we love to do Q&A at the end, live Q&A. Um, so a couple of different notices about that. Unfortunately, in order for me and my daughter to be able to catch our flight at 625 in Harrisburg, uh, Harrisburg? Harris, I don't even know where I am. Harrisburg, we're gonna have to leave like right um, at the end of this. So I will leave enough time for q and I'll, I'll do the talk a little bit shorter. So be thinking ahead of time, write your questions down. And um, because our team is still at the booth and we have people present, if your question doesn't get answered, this is a huge topic. You can go to the booth, you can talk it over some, we have some resources and we have um, a whole website lots of free resources. We have a whole YouTube channel where you can hear almost all of our speakers give a version of this talk. So um, don't worry, because I know this is big, and I know it opens up lots of questions. It's tearing my heart out to have to leave early. I literally stayed for over an hour after my um, session yesterday. So I just wanted to let you guys know ahead of time so you can start thinking about it. And also one more notice, if any of you cannot hear me at any time during the Q&A or something, just try to give me a little wave and keep your hand up there. Um, you can't hear me now. You can't. Okay. Is there any way before I get started that we can turn it up a little bit or not? It's Max. Okay. So I will be speaking louder. Forgive me in the front. Can you guys hear me if I speak like this? Yes? Okay. So I apologize in advance. It, when I stand this close to the because I love to, because I feel far away, I feel like I'm shouting at you guys when I'm this loud. But remember, I'm not shouting at you. I'm not a strident, angry woman speaking on this topic. It's just that I have got to reach the back, okay? This happened in the University of Florida. We had a problem with the, the system on this topic. This is all intro, so if you're coming, it's okay. I'm just getting it out of the way so we can dive right in at two. And it was a stadium seating lecture hall. And they were like, you need to speak louder. And I promise you, the people in the front were like, she's an angry woman because I'm speaking louder and louder. And in the back, they're going, we can't hear you. And I'm like, I'm yelling at the people in the front. So you just guys, way in the back, back there, keep waving if you can't hear me. If I can't shout any louder, possibly, if it's not too hard for you, you can move a little bit closer. And that might help as well. So thank you so much. We'll get kicked off right at two.
Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to kick off by my watch time instead of everybody's synced GPS time. It'll give us a few extra minutes. For those of you who just missed that intro, my name is Michelle Tepper. I work with RZIM. We're an organization that exists to help the thinker believe and the believer think. And what we do is we engage with hard questions like this of life and faith in the world. So I'm going to dive right in to a big topic. Maybe you've heard the question. Maybe someone's asked the question. Maybe you have the question. Hey, there's this God of love. This is good news for all people. But is the Bible really good news for me if I'm a woman? Or is the Bible really good news for my sister if she's a woman? Or is the Bible really good news for women in general? And did you know that this is a big question for many different areas, whether you've ever asked this or not? 2017 was declared as the year of the woman. I don't know if you know that, but it was declared by Washington Post, Huffington Post, basically all the major news networks and uh, periodicals around the world. And then this was set off after the Women's March that happened in January 21st in Washington, D.C., and then it was echoed around the world in 137 different countries on exactly the same day. Then after this happens, at the beginning of 2017, we then see the public exposure of sexual abuse and misconduct by prominent figures in Hollywood, right? Do you remember that? This is all last year, which is then followed by a female-led social media movement called the Me Too movement, which has always been, already been mentioned at this festival, that spread around the world so powerfully that Time Magazine took that historic person of the year that they named, they named the group of women, all of the women who started this Me Too movement as the people of the year, the women of the year. That's how powerful it was. But my favorite thing, which was why I believe it was 2017 year of the woman, is that we had the revival of Wonder Woman. Anybody else have some fans out there? Yeah, it was great to see. Sophie and I were rocking Wonder Woman shirts the first day in. And finally, for any of you Star Wars fans, we have got female Jedi running the Rebel Alliance, okay? The year of the woman. Now you're already going, oh no, how is this going to go? But when you have all of this, regardless of what you think of this, things might be flashing across your forehead right now. Maybe two things, and this is usually the reaction I get right after I say this to people. First off, some Christians go, why would you even be mentioning that? Why would you be glorifying some of those things? Can we even celebrate those things as Christians? And then other people go, yeah, look at this. Look at everything that's happened. Look at where society's at right now. How possibly could the Bible, this ancient text, have anything relevant to say to our world right now? And maybe you're like, well, you know what, society, I'm not weak-minded like the, you know, the ones that aren't the Jedi. I'm not weak-minded like you, Michelle, that's influenced by all the news and all of the organizations. But maybe you're like, my question is about church history. If you read through different quotes of various church fathers, different leaders over the year, you come across some shocking things. There's a guy called St. Albert Magnus, or St. Albert the Great from the 13th century. Here's what he said about women. Woman is a misbegotten man and has a faulty and defective nature in comparison to his. Therefore, she is unsure of herself. What she cannot get, she seeks to obtain through lying and diabolical deceptions. And so, to put it briefly, one must be on one's guard with every woman as if she were a poisonous snake and the horned devil. You might be laughing. You might have never heard that. You might be going, oh my, why are you talking about this? You're making the problem bigger, Michelle. But the truth of the matter is some people have this view because either society has said, look, look what's happening right now. The Bible can't speak to it. Or people have gone, look at what church history has said. Look what people who say they follow the Bible and say they follow Jesus said, and this is why we're in the predicament we're in. 
Or maybe for you, none of these things are your question today. Maybe it's much more personal. And I want to address you today, whoever you are, male or female. This question is important not only in light of current events or because of church or religious history, but also to address issues within our own Christian community. Many of us have grieved over the past year as prominent Christian leaders across the USA have been connected to cases of inappropriate treatment of women. And for some of us here today, these have been very close to home. Some of you here might have suffered personally. Some of your friends or family might have suffered personally at the hands of Christian people in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Bible. And you're going, how do I rectify this good God? How do I rectify the Bible? You still need louder? I'll keep going a little bit louder. How do I rectify this with what my sister, my friend, my mother, I myself have suffered? And so before I go any further today, I want to say this is not only an intellectual or a biblical study to answer this. This is a personal question that I want to deal with personally and say, I am so sorry if anybody here has been hurt in the name of Jesus, using the Bible to hurt you, in the name of a church leader. Please, on behalf of the family of God, which I am a part of, let me apologize to you for members of my family who have not represented our Father well. And I believe what you will hear today will be redemptive and healing because what the Bible has to say about women is truly incredible. And so whether society or history or personal experience has given us or any of you this view, as Christians, if you are a Christian here today, we cannot let it give us a reason to dismiss the Bible or ignore it. Why? Because those sources are not the final word on who God is, and how his character is lived out and what he feels towards all men and people. In fact, we have to, as Christians, look primarily in the Bible. Because as Christians, we believe that to know what God is like, we have to look inside the pages of his words. And what this is part of a much bigger question, which we won't have time to go into today. But I think if you take a step back, this is a question of, can we even trust the Bible? Is it reliable? Because I'm going to now dive into lots of passages. Which are, I normally have a whole presentation, so it's really hard. You're going to hear lots of references. If you have a notebook, write them down. That way you know I'm not just throwing texts at you going, see, this is what God thinks we're doing. You go and study them later. There's just not a screen out here in the beautiful setting of the woods. The Bible, is it reliable? Is it relevant? Is it really good news for all people? This question and any other question about the text of scripture, if you want to engage with it for your own heart or for your friends and your world, you have to take a step back and actually ask those questions and be confident of those to then be able to dig into passages of scripture and be able to share them with your friends, with your family, okay? But what you might not be clued in about is the Bible's high view of women actually stands matchless among sacred texts and historical documents. If you line up the Bible compared to any other historical documents with women's rights, any other religious rights, the Bible is matchless in champion, championing women. Yet many think the Bible itself is to blame for most, if not all, mistreatment of women in our modern society. And maybe you're here today because you've heard that or you think that. 
But when we actually look at the pages of the Bible, instead of letting society or history or our own experiences um, color or infiltrate what we think about the Bible, this is what we see when we look in the pages of Scripture. This is what I will try to show you from cover to cover in the time that we have left. We see when we look in the Bible a God who first exposes injustice, secondly, the God who is the divine standard for equality, and thirdly, the God who personally defends us. So that's where I'm going. The God who exposes injustice, a God who is the very divine standard for equality, and a God who personally defends us. So first, the God who exposes injustice. The God of the Bible has always disproved of all types of injustice. It is filled from cover to cover with verses and phrases and lines to say over and over again things like, I, the Lord, love justice, and I, the Lord, don't change. So we see this God who stands up for the weak, who stands up for the least, and the lost, and the oppressed. But you might be going, yeah, sure, you have great verses like that, but what about all the other verses that are really hard to rectify with this God of justice? For instance, someone once turned to me and showed me Deuteronomy 1, as you can take these notes, verses 10 through 13, and they read out, and I'm going to read it out to you, normally it's just on the screen. They said, how do you say that this is a God of injustice? When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and you are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife bring her into your home have her shave her head trim her nails put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured hold the phone you just said the bible shows us a god who exposes injustice that doesn't seem very just to me don't verses like this michelle and many others prove that the bible is at best irrelevant for our modern world and lives or at worst divisive and dangerous for modern society. But I want to pause here and challenge you. Whenever you have questions yourself or from other people about the Bible, it's really important to treat them like any question about any type of real historical study. We can't look at any study of literature, any study of, hit, of, of history, and look with our cultural moment and judge it based on our experiences and where we are at, or we will completely misread the situation. Professor Sydney White Crawford, she's of the University of Nebraska. She's also one of the leading archeologists of our time. She puts it this way. She said, we often infect the Bible with our own values and morals, not stopping to ask what the Bible's values and morals really are. How hard is it for us to get our heads around the ancient Near East, that's the culture that the Old Testament is in, or even the Greco-Roman world, when I can travel like I just did to India two weeks ago, and I was gifted, anyone know what a sari is? Those beautiful things that Indian women wear, they're wrapped around their one intricate piece of fabric that's, um, that's woven. You have got to know someone that knows how to pin it. Even some young modern Indian women only have their moms or their grandmas do it. And I wanted to wear this gift to the church who gifted it to me and there were no women or people that I knew in the hotel I had to ask a laundry lady to pin it for me because they are so hard but these saris in India it is just a common thing to show off your midriff that's what you do okay that's how you do it I was raised in a strict pastor's family in a church where you don't show anything actually growing up I would have been breaking a lot of rules even in what I'm wearing today and so I'm like I'm preaching I can't show off any bit of skin what is going on and yet they gifted it to me. 
and I wore it. And they were crying. They were saying, thank you so much. It was like 100 degrees heat, hotter than it was here. I'm wrapped in this thing. There had been monsoon the night before. There was no air. I was dripping at the end and showing things I wouldn't normally have showed. It didn't seem appropriate to my cultural context. And yet, to meet them where they were at, I couldn't judge them based on my upbringing, what was holy and what wasn't. This is Christians. They were hearing the word of God. But you know what to them? We would all be shocking because they do not even show the bottom of their legs. Whether you are religious or not in India, it is seen the same way walking around with a preacher up on Creation Fest showing off their whole midriff in a bikini. If I or any of you guys would be walking around with your legs shown, in fact, many of them wear leggings in the 100-degree heat underneath their sari to be modest. If I can't understand the cultural appropriateness, even modern day, and I've traveled to India twice before, and I travel all around the world, how much harder is it for us to really understand what's going on when we're reading the Bible? And so I want to preface that with everything we read. Don't judge too quickly by your time in history, because things were a lot different then. But given all that, the truth of the matter is there are sexist, misogynistic, whatever word you want to put on it, stories in the Bible. And we do find a high concentration of them in the Old Testament. But we gotta understand what we're reading when we're reading the Bible. You see, the Bible tells us the story of God. It tells us the story of how the God, the creator of the universe, men and women who made every single person in, their, in, in his own image because he loved them and so, thought, saw, thought so much value and dignity over men and women alike. He made us in his image, and then he has been pursuing us throughout history. And the Bible is that story of this God of love pursuing his people. And then it tells us of how people were trying to understand and trying to connect to this God. And in doing so, it shows us an accurate picture of human nature. I, for one, am really glad that the Bible actually records bad things, mistakes, mess-ups in Scripture and doesn't cover them over, blot them out to rewrite human history, all perfect and tidy. It records all of these details, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Why? Not to condone them, but to say these always have been unjust. These always will be wrong and to expose these wrongs as completely the injustice that they are because he's a God who exposes injustice. To clearly show how destructive things like in this list you will find in the Bible, things like slavery, prostitution, adultery, any and all forms of gender violence has always been and always will be to relationship, to our society, and to us personally. But the fact that the mistreatment of women or anybody else in the Bible is documented can never be and will never be an excuse or justification of ignoring any type of abuse today. And neither do these stories mean that the people who are suffering violence of any kind should continue in harmful situations. It's actually the opposite. The Bible documents these things and these injustices. Why? First off, to call for an end to them and to clearly command any followers of this God who fights and speaks out against injustice to protest against them, to speak out against them, just as our God does. The United Nations says that one out of every three women in the world have experienced some type of abuse in their life, and unfortunately, it's from a man belonging to their closest circle. But less than 40% of these women seek some kind of help. 
And studies show that the main reason for why people do not speak up or ask for help is that in some way, shape, or form, they have begun to believe that their, the violence and the abuse that they are experiencing is justified for some reason. But the Bible shows us a God who hates the mistreatment of women and all human beings. And if you or someone you know and love is suffering violence of any kind, abuse of any kind, emotional, physical, sexual, spiritual, please don't keep silent just because you're in a community of faith. And do not be afraid to speak out and ask for help. Please talk, even today, to someone you came with that you can trust. And if there isn't someone that you can trust, I know that Grace Ministries has a whole outreach arm that's here today at this festival. But why do I say this? Today, more than ever before, we need to understand that we need an absolute standard to protect the dignity of both men and women alike. And that is what the Bible clearly shows us. It first shows us a God who exposes all types of injustice, which is why all of that injustice and those hard stories and hard verses about women and slavery and many other things are listed. And then the second thing the Bible shows us clearly is a divine standard for equality. And just starting quickly in the Old Testament and then going to the New Testament, I know it's hot and I know it's post-lunch. I know I'm giving you a lot of facts and verses, but stick with me here. I'm actually really proud of the hammock people for not being asleep in those hammocks. This is what it says starting in the Old Testament, even starting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It said God made man in his image. And then it says male and, oh, there's a little bit of audience participation, male and female. He created them. You might be going, you're stretching that. You know that to have a God, a creator God, which were there, there were other gods spoken about in the time of the ancient Near East, that not only made human beings in his image, that is a dignity and value put on humankind that no other religions could claim at that time, but that when he said he made them male and female, he's saying equally, men and women are of equal value and worth to the divine. You move forward. Anybody ever heard of the Ten Commands? I'm sure you all have, right? Honor your mother and your father, right? That would have been an absolute shocker in the ancient Near East world. Women would not have had equal authority in the household, and definitely they wouldn't have had to be honored, especially by any males in the household, even their own sons. Even today, in some parts around the world, women in the home do not have equal honor to the father. If you read further in Deuteronomy, remember that shocking passage I started out, this is another lesson. If someone points out or you come across a, a section in scripture you don't understand and it doesn't fit with the God that we have come to know in Jesus Christ who gives us a way to repent and follow him and sets up this divine standard through the cross, then make sure you read before the passage and you read after the passage. A lot of our confusion about scripture comes because we pull one passage out of context and we don't understand what's going on. If you keep reading in Deuteronomy, which I showed that person who showed me that text, it says, after this woman, remember, this woman is captured, she's taken, her head's shaved, she's, her clothes, she's lost her clothes. After she's lived in your house and mourned their father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be, with, and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, once again, you might be saying, that doesn't sound still all that great. But let's not take our cultural moment and think about this. What we see here is the building blocks for just warfare. What we see here 
as things that the United Nations and civil rights, international civil rights, have been built on. Basically, God is giving the command first to his own male warriors. If you're going to go out and you're going to fight, any other neighboring um, uh, country that would be in warfare would be able to rape, pillage, completely destroy, and just leave a woman or anybody else, any sort of uh, person, just, just, just to die. If you're going to go out and you see a woman, first off, cool your jets. You can't do anything for 30 days. You take her into your house, and the whole thing that we don't quite understand about shaving her head, trimming her nails, and purifying, those are all normal purification rites to prepare for weddings in that time that both women outside the society and in the society would be doing for Orthodox Judaism. You take her into your house, you give her a period to get ready for a wedding, and give her a period to grieve the loss of her people the loss of her country. And then after 30 days, when you're not in the heat of battle, when you're not angry, if you want to take her into your household with equal rights to any of the wives and any of the people of your people, the women's rights of that area, not as a slave, not as a prisoner, then you marry her appropriately in the sight of Yahweh. If not, you let her go. You don't keep her as a slave. You don't sell her. She is a free, independent woman. This is shocking women's rights for the ancient Near East culture. The Bible is actually cutting edge on the treatment of women. And it starts all the way in the Old Testament. But even if we move and jump forward into the New Testament, we have to remember, once again, the context. So if the Old Testament is set in the ancient Near East culture, the New Testament is set in what we call the Greco-Roman world. And we're reading lots of things. And we think about people like Aristotle. We think about Greek philosophy. We think, oh, well, women must have had a lot of rights in those days because they were the thinking Greeks, right? Let me tell you a little bit about the background of the New Testament. Aristotle compared the relationship between a husband and wife to that of a king and his subject, or a ruler and those ruled. In Athenian law, Women could not own property, make economic transaction. Their testimony had no legal standing in court. Women had the social status of a slave. They couldn't leave their houses alone. They could not speak in public. They could not hold a job. They could not earn on their own. They could not be educated. They could not give their testimony in court. In every way, shape, or form, in the backdrop of the New Testament, even though it was more modern, women still had absolutely no rights compared to what we know today. Which is why we look at what the Bible shows us about Jesus and his treatment to women. It's so incredibly moving and so incredibly exciting for this question today. And that's when I want to move to that final thing. I said, when we look at the Bible, because if we want to ask this question, is the Bible sexist? What are we really asking? God, do you care about men and women equally? God, do you really defend both people equally? We see a God who exposes injustice. We see the God who is the divine standard for equality. And then finally, through Jesus, we see the God who personally stands up to defend us. That's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just set the rules. He didn't just point at people who are doing things wrong and go, hey, that's wrong. Well, women, men alike, slaves, different gender, different races, you'd all get treated better if you follow the rules. Jesus breaks in on the scene and goes, listen, people are getting hurt here, so I'm going to be your defender. 
Jesus is the ultimate evidence for how God feels towards women and what the Bible says about women. Listen to the words of Dorothy Sayers. I got the um, privilege of studying at Oxford University and living there for 13 years. Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to graduate the University of Oxford ever, and she was uh, a very first feminist in the 1950s of England. And she wrote these famous essays, these feminist essays that nobody wanted to read, they banned, are women even human? But this is what she says about the man Jesus. Women had never known a man like this, and there will never be such another, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. Both in his teaching and in his activities, Jesus reached out to women as persons who were equally worthy as men in his saving activity. You see, Jesus flipped every single gender stereotype on its head. You could say, in fact, he was so radical on loving the outsider, in thinking outside of the box, that that's what got him killed. That's what the New Testament shows us. Let me give you a few texts in scripture and we see Jesus treating towards women. I'll speak even louder because the music is starting, okay? In John chapter 4, we see the Samaritan woman, the very famous story. And she is what? She's not just a woman that Jesus reaches out to and speaks to. And if you're familiar with that passage, his disciples woke up in the scene, and it says in the Bible, his disciples are like, whoa, why is Jesus speaking to a woman? Remember, he wasn't allowed to. They didn't have the society for doing that. But Jesus reveals his actual identity as the Messiah to a woman first. In John's gospel, Jesus, I was with the donut man this morning, the last two mornings, and he rocks those parables, right? And John's specifically famous for being very poetic. I'm the door, I'm the light, I'm the way, all these things. Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, an outsider by race and by gender, and he's like, hey, I'm the Messiah. I just want to clear this up for you. I'm going to give you this treasure clear because you're of such value and worth. Did you know that Jesus also had female disciples? In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it talks about Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna who traveled around with Jesus and his disciples. Remember? They didn't have homes. They traveled. There were roads. They were roadies together for three years. And they even supported Jesus from their own means. Once again, normally women were not allowed to have any type of earnings. And the women that are traveling around with Jesus and his disciples are not only permitted to travel around with this, this men, but they are identified as people that are cultural influences and their funds are recognized and accepted. Women are also permitted to study theology by Jesus. You know that famous story of Luke chapter 10 where Mary and Martha are both in the house, and Martha is faffing away, and she's cleaning and cooking, and she's like, hello, Jesus, can't you get Mary to come and do something? When Jesus says Mary has chosen the better thing, yes, we can give, and we can learn a thousand different lessons about intimacy with Christ, and we should, as sitting at the feet of Jesus, but do you know what the phrase, to sit at Jesus' feet means? In that culture, the only people that were permitted to sit at a rabbi's feet were the rabbi's seminary students that he was training. Paul uses exactly the same phrase. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel to list his education. Jesus is saying, let her be educated. She is learning. She is a leader. Jesus speaks about God in female terms in Luke chapter 13 and 15, which you might be going, that is not that big a deal. Yes, it was blaspheme in the Jewish culture to refer to God as female. What does he do? First in Luke chapter 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that I could gather you as chicks to a mother's breast. 
and take you to myself. And then in Luke 15, probably the most famous parables about how much God loves the least and the last in his pursuing society. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The parable of the lost coin depicts God the Father as a woman down on her hands and knees, scrubbing her house to find that one coin because he loves us so much. And probably the best evidence we have of how Jesus feels towards women and thus how the Bible views women is that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But you got to remember, why is this important for the value of women and what the Bible says about women? Remember that in this culture, women's testimonies were not accepted in ancient courts. So here's my question. Was this the worst divine coincidence in history? Jesus rose from the dead in the most momentous fact and point in history and definitely of the Christian faith, rises from the dead. And he's like, oh man, only Mary's there. Nobody's going to believe me now. You don't think that the Jesus and the God who raised himself from the dead could time so that a more appropriate eyewitness in court and in history like a man would have been there? Or maybe it speaks of a God who at the very turning point of salvation and human history chose to pour out validity, worth, and dignity on women and say, it doesn't matter if people don't accept your witness. You are of value to me, and you go and start and spread the good news around the world. What Jesus shows us is not an argument against women, and it's not an argument for a strident feminism. What it is is an argument for society and history to be put back together where we shape ourselves based on what God feels towards every person. Emma Watson, I believe in 2015, gave a very famous, she's the girl who did Beauty and the Beast in real life recently. She gave a famous U, um, UN speech where she talks about what we need to do is we need to stop. And she got a lot of bad rap for it because she said, feminism, you know, we're starting to yell at people and, and, and we're starting to be angry. And what we really need is a movement that's he for she. We need a movement where women st stand up for men and where men stand up for women. You could argue that Jesus was the original he for she, showing how society needed to have us both united again together, celebrating and championing each other because God made both male and female in his image and Jesus redeemed every single man, woman, and child, race, gender, historical moment by shedding his blood for them. And you know what? I've traveled around the world. I've studied other religions. I've seen different cu cultures. I've compared other philosophies. And the truth of the matter is, only the message of Jesus Christ could achieve a cultural change in history that remains to this day. The reason why women's issues are so big right now, why people are saying women need justice, is because we believe, even though even some of these people that are saying it don't believe in this God, but fundamentally there's a God who says all people need justice. And it's just, a, a, it's just a tainting that our society has gone. There's a hunger for justice. There's a hunger for validity. There's a hunger for worth. And they haven't found that. They don't know that that's what God offers it. So they're trying to fight for it. Or we're trying to fight for it in and of our own ma matters and measures. But Jesus' message can achieve this and did achieve this in history and still is powerful and relevant today. Why? Because his message is more than just rules, tradition, legalism, or popular opinion. 
the message of Jesus Christ, the good news, speaks of a personal relationship with the creator God who confers dignity and worth on every human being, men and women alike, by sacrificing his very life for us. In that, Jesus, and thus the Bible, defined and still defines today a new way for us all to identify ourselves, not by race, not by gender, not by behavior, but by relationship to this God who loves us and who created us. And perhaps as I end and open it up to Q&A, the most important question today, if you're still mulling over, can I trust this God? Is the Bible sexist? The most important question and the personal one you need to ask I've just shown you the evidence of scripture. You have to decide, will I trust the God of the Bible? Will I trust him with my heart? Will I trust him to personally defend me? Jesus came as God himself and he exposed injustice to show the divine standard for equality and to personally defend you and I. But will we trust him to do it? We all hunger for equality, significance, and justice. And the Bible tells us the story of the God who gave us these desires and fights for them personally and gave himself to fight for them. And then when we come to know and live and love by his ways, then he empowers us to live this beautiful message courageously, live a life defending others, not just fighting for ourselves. That's the message of the Christian faith. That is what God and the Bible have to offer every man, every woman, and every person today. So for the sake of time, what I just want to give an opportunity to do is if you don't know that God, if the God who you have heard about is not that God who came and who still today personally defends you, who sees you as of utmost value and worth, that he shed his very life for you. I want to give you a chance to say, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you have done right by me and you will do right by me and that you will give me the courage to fight and to live and to defend others the way that you defend me. So if we take a personal moment right now, if you would just bow your, your, your heads. If you want to take that step and say, I choose today to not just question the God of the Bible, but I want to follow the God of the Bible who revealed himself through Jesus. And as Dorothy Sayer said, there's never been another man like that. Then you echo this in your heart personally, and then we will transition to a time of Q&A. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're real. I thank you that you're the God who exposes injustice. And though there are many things in my life, in my world, even in your word that are hard to understand, I choose to trust that you fight for me and you fought for me and that you sent Jesus, you came Jesus, to show the true path to freedom from defining myself in any way besides relationship with you. Forgive me for not trusting you. I want you to come in to heal me from shame, to heal me from judgment, to heal me from anger, and to fill my life and make me new. And Lord, cause me to live a life full of you that loves others well and that fights against injustice and preserves lives of others the way that you gave your very life to preserve me. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
Guys, thank you for sticking with me with lots of passages. I want to go right into Q&A, but if you prayed that today or at any other point in Creation Fest with any other speaker and you haven't told someone yet, tell someone you came with or go to the resource, the prayer tent, where they can give you some resources for following Jesus. So I'm sure you have a thousand questions. You might even have some objections. And um, the floor is yours. So if you want to stand up where you are and shout out a question, all you guys that just stood up are about to hit the, the deck now, then please go ahead. Anyone have a question? Right here. I'm going to have to have you shout it, and then I'll try to shout it. I'm losing my voice as I go if you guys can hear this. Great. And what's your name? Jenny Ray? All right. Jenny Ray asked a great question. And probably this was on the tip of all of your tongues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you left out the hard parts. I leave them out because I want you guys to ask, basically. I want to give that time for you. So you just talked about the Bible, who gives us a God who exposes injustice and who stands up. Why do so many doubt this is true? Is it all the Apostle Paul's fault? What about sticky passages like in Corinthians or like in Timothy? First off, I want to point you to a great resource to give you further reading. Um, Amy or Ewing, a personal friend and also colleague, wrote, Is the Bible Intolerant? And every single chapter goes through different questions about the Bible. And there's a great one on this question of women. She puts it this way. The Apostle Paul, who is often demonized as being sexist, in fact, freely ministered along alongside women, which is true. We see in Romans chapter 13, uh, 16 and Acts 18, where he mentions many of the women that he ministered alongside. And so all of these two passages, which I will go into specifically, need to be once again taken in the broader context, not only of the whole of scripture, but also even in Paul. Because Paul is also the person in Galatians 3 that says, there's neither slave nor free. There's not Jew or Greek. There's no male and female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So first off, remember to put it in context. But then we do say, hey, there are some hard questions. So let me very quickly, because this is important. This might have been a question for all of you guys. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians first, because that's the easiest one by far. And then we'll leave it to the harder one, okay? And you can look up further studies on this. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 through 36. There's a classic thing that says, as in all places of the church, women should be silent. But what we need to do, once again, is put it in context of the whole letter that he's writing to the Corinthian church. What's going on in this letter, he is writing about appropriate public worship. And so from chapters 11 all the way through to 14, where we read this shocking, sticky packet, um, passage, he's addressing both men and women. You see him address men and say, this is the way you dress when you you prophesy and when you speak and when you pray in public and then he says to women this is the way you dress this is the way you do your hair when you do what prophesy speak and pray in public worship so then did he suddenly have like a change of mind a couple of paragraphs later because he's just given rules about attire for women and men that are going to be speaking publicly. No, I don't believe that then he just suddenly changes his mind. So we have to read a couple verses earlier. And what we see starting in verse 27, which we normally just look at verses 13, is there are three groups of people that Paul expressly sa says, be silent in the church. And let me tell you who they are. First, in verses 27 through 28, he talks about speakers in tongues. Those of you who are familiar with this passage, he says, if there's no interpreter, speakers in tongues. Now, he's already said all men, all men and women get these gifts. And he's already said if you're going to be using these gifts, this is how you dress, both men and women. So he says speakers in tongues, men and women. If there's no interpreter, be silent. 
Then you move on to the next set of verses, 29 through 32. Prophets, both male and female, because he specifically, chapters early, talks to female prophets as well. He says, don't talk all at once. It's really confusing. Be silent. And then you move on to 33 through 36. Now, you have to have a good understanding to get yourself some commentaries, use the commentaries of, of the original text. The better translation here is actually married women be silent in the church. Why do we say this? Well, I've already told you that he's addressed women who are speaking and prophesying and speaking in tongues how to dress. And the word gune, which is woman in the Greek, is also sister, is also wife, is also married woman. So it's very hard, which is why it's just translated as women in many of our, um, our modern texts. So what he's saying is don't ask questions during the worship service. Don't talk. Be silent in the church. How do we know this? Remember what I said? Jesus just broke through. Christians, new churches are experiencing new rights, even in worship services. They've never had before. Women were not allowed out of the house without their men. They weren't allowed to be educated. They weren't allowed to worship in the same parts. They probably still at this time were not allowed to sit with the men. So what you have is women who did not speak the trade language of the day, because Corinthians is a big trade thing, and they're not knowing any of these other believers, and they're trying to get translations from their husband in the dialect they spoke at home. I don't know if any of you were raised speaking two languages. My husband speaks both Spanish and English. Sometimes we switch into Spanish because he understands or he can explain something better that way. If he shouts out in the middle of a service to get a better explanation, it doesn't make any sense. So that's the one that's definitely easier. So let's move on very quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We see that it, um, women are told to be silent, to not teach, and then the reason is all put on ease. If you've got to give it a summary, go back and read this passage. Okay, so there's a couple different things we need to go on here. And I want to say there have been volumes and volumes and hours and lectures that are given on this. So please go, don't take my word for it, go and research this yourself as well, okay? So what we have in 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 15, first we have to see the positive again. It says learn in quietness and submission. So once, uh, once again, Paul is actually speaking to women and he's telling them they should be educated, right? And so we need to see the positive in that. Then the next thing, it says learn in quietness and submission, right? But what is that submission to? We have many times jumped to in submission to men, but it's actually in submission to the orthodoxy of gospel. Learn in quietness and be in submission to the real faith. There was something that was going on here in um, Timothy. This is the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had um, goddess worship. Great is the goddess Artemis. If you've read in Acts what was going on there, there was a lot of riots that were going on. And the only form of religious worship that people had in Ephesus before Jesus broke in in Christianity is where men were actually sexual slaves that were forced to be castrated and serve as priests and serve as sex slaves to the female priestesses for the goddess of um, Diana. And so you've got a lot of brutality going on. And I don't know if any of you have studied social history before or have traveled to different parts of the world where you see Catholicism or you see Christianity that gets mixed. It's called syncretism in with the pagan or the um, indigenous religion of the time. This was going on in the early church. So Paul is speaking specifically to an early heresy that's happening in the church in Ephesus where there are women who have gotten saved, come to follow Jesus, but they are taking parts 
of the goddess worship, taking parts of the worship they had before, and they're using it to try to bring a new message. You have this not just with Paul. In 1 John, if you have a chapter, um, if you've done a study in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, John, a lot of the things that we don't understand, he's speaking to an early heresy in the church, renosticism, where people are saying there's a hidden way, there's new knowledge, and we combine with this with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we come out with a greater authority to live and to worship with. But he's calling out women who actually, as well if you do some study, were trying to use Paul's own words against him. You know when Paul teaches in Romans that through one man, sin entered the world, Adam, right? And then he says, and through one man, Jesus Christ, we are freed from sin. There was actually this type of heresy that was going on. These women who had gotten saved out of this indigenous lifestyle where there was goddess worship and the women were all in charge. They're saying, hey, even Paul says that it's through men that sin came into the world. So we are not sinful. We are more holy. So he calls this on the head, and he says, absolutely not. And where else do we see this? Have you studied it? The word um, authority, that women should not have authority in church. I'm jumping very quick. I can do two hours on this, and I know there might be more questions. Is authentale in Greek there, if you've done any studies. So the word that women should not have any authority. That word is only used in scripture that one time. Once again, there's been volumes and, and debates and things written on this one word because that's what we do. If you find one word in scripture that's never used in, you don't throw it out and you don't ignore it, but what you do first is if it's not found in scripture anywhere else where you can compare it and try to have the better meaning, you look just outside of scripture but in the same cultural time to see how the society understood that word. Once again, there's a word that's barely ever used in society at that time, but when it's used in society, it wasn't just have authority, it was to murder, to brutalize, to castrate, even at worst. So that's why we see this linkage into what women are coming out of, and he's calling out a heresy. Now, where do we move today? This is a long answer, but it's important. Where we move today, that doesn't give us the credibility to say, well, that was just for Ephesus. And so anything else that was just for a certain church, we throw out when we don't like in the Bible. No, I think this speaks directly to what Emma Watson was speaking about. That if men or women feel an injustice, or if we have society pressing in on us, saying we need to fight out, and it comes against the meekness and the way that Jesus gained authority by laying his very life down, then we need to speak out again. So now as never before, I think we need to understand Timothy in its right context, where we actually have a society that's quite like Ephesus, and not use it as a way to silence women in church, but have us bring all of our wants, all of our desires, both men and women alike, under submission to the God who laid himself down for us to defend us. That's a very long answer, but it's a very academic and good question. I hope that helped many. Do we have time for, yep, at least one more if anyone else has another question. Thank you for that. Could you guys hear? Yes? Okay. What's your name? Tara asked a great question. Um, some of you who sat, um, I believe it was in Joe Vitale's talk, I think she referenced this um, the first night. But she asked, what about in Sodom and Gomorrah? What was going on when Lot basically offers up his virgin daughters to the men of the city to try to protect um, the, the, the angels that come? What I wanna say is that would fall under what I was talking about in the beginning of the talk where there are things 
that I think are just downright wrong. And I think we can all be there. That people that are even, sometimes people that are hungering after God and are trying to do things right in panic situations or just in legalistic situations, we react and we do something that we think, I don't know, maybe this will help, and it's just the wrong decision. And the Bible records them, not because it's right, not because the Bible's saying, if there's ever an angel, it's okay to throw women's rights out the window, just offer them up to be sacrificed. There was a lot going wrong. In fact, if you read, once again, the context, Lot was not in a good place. Abraham didn't think he should go and move down there. Lot, you know, Abraham begged God to save Lot, and then Lot barely went. They had to drag the family out, and his wife even looked back. And then if you see the brokenness of their family, what goes on with Lot's daughters, how they try to take things into their own hands just the way the father, interestingly enough, tried to take things into his own hands, it's in the same way. It's a type of sexual brokenness. And I think this is a bigger question because sometimes the, idea, the question of is Bible sexist has, comes down to questions of, Right now, at least, when we're talking about women's rights, a lot of times people are speaking out because there's been hurt and there's been abuse. But I think whether men or women alike, when we take our eyes off Jesus, when we take our eyes off the Bible, who gives us the perfect template, not only for equality, but the way we should love right, right? Jesus says all of the law is about loving rightly, loving God and loving others. When we have disordered love towards God, we end up destroying ourselves and destroying others in the process. And so the Bible doesn't put that down as condoning it. It's putting it down because that was the history and how broken not only Sodom and Gomorrah were, but Lot and his family were. Good question, Kara. Anyone else have one final question? What about when it says, uh, I can't find it, I've been looking for it. It's in, uh, it's in Deuteronomy and it might be in Leviticus too, where uh, if, um, if a man uh, takes a woman and she has another wife, yeah okay so so there are a lot of things specifically when we get into levitical law um that we see people we see things about slavery being deemed in terms of property there's a couple different ways to look at them first off what we see in the old testament we don't just throw out hard things because we don't like them so i want to say that again and again and again but we see over 600 laws given to the people of God, but there were three different categories of those laws, right? There is um, the priestly law, which uh, Jesus fulfilled because he became our great high priest, which is why we don't um, purify ourselves and have to do all of those type of things that way anymore because Jesus purifies us and we walk under his purification. We also see laws um, for the uh, uh, for the government and the people of Israel, which they are not a nation in and of themselves the way they were. So we don't have to follow those laws anymore because that was for specifically that time and the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. Just like we don't, we follow the laws if you're from the United States of the United States government. We don't follow the laws of the Japanese government. So there's that. So there's civil, there's ceremonial, but then there's also moral law. The moral law of God, which Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish any of the law. I stand and I preserve them. And those are things like the law of marriage, right? Jesus echoes, therefore, a man and a woman will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the moral law about marriage, about sexual purity, about the way that it's rightly enacted. Jesus upholds all of those things and usually magnifies them and makes them harder, right? He says, you might say, um, you know, he, he said, Moses, let us divorce. And he said, I don't think you should divorce. So usually Jesus takes the moral law, which is about relationship, which is all down to love. Like I just said, he preserves that and stands it up because the heart of those priestly laws and the heart of the civil laws of the government's laws were still from the God of love, but it was for a different period. But even giving that, they're hard. Why would God 
you know, give laws in that way. A couple different ways to look at it is many of those laws that look the most extreme are literally, um, it's giving a maximum punishment, like a cutoff of what you could do in a society that would have been generally by nature very brutal, the ancient Near East culture. It would have gone much further rather than it being the commandment of this is what you do every time. There's a lot of, does that make any sense in this context? So in some ways, like there's, um, there's one that talks about a rebellious son should be um, uh, killed, stoned, and then hung on a tree, right? That seems horrible. I've been rebellious as a teenager. Maybe some people here have been. That seems terrible, but do you know there is never a case of that recorded not only in scripture, but in the Hebrew law? The only case of a son that's ever hung to a tree is what? Jesus Christ, the maximum punishment, right? So you need to run, understand that even some of these laws in the Old Testament story that look very gruesome, they're setting the maximum for a cutoff, and that's always the case. But when there are people, women, women or men alike, um, that are called property or treated as slaves, once again, we need to see that this is still a building blocks for civil rights that we, we did not have before because, the, not we, they did not have before. The people of Israel were slaves, right, in Egypt for a long time. They were treated as property. And so there is a law, there was actually codified, set up rights for people that are in slavery and servitude because they had never had that before. So it's very important and dear to their hearts that there is actually a maximum. This is how long you can serve. This is when you can buy yourself back. These are the rights that you would have. So once again, sometimes when you see the maximum where you see a law, it seems worse off than it is, but it's actually setting up a protection. I don't know if you've ever had that. You set a law for your child. You set a law for um, a family member or a rule or a boundary. The rule can seem quite strict, right? But it's actually something that is a protection. And so um, we also see that Jesus does away with not only divorce, but also um, polygamy and many of that. So that's a lot of times just kind of the change between the culture of coming to know God from an ancient Near East culture and then um, marriage and rights being set by, by Jesus in the New Testament. I don't know if that helps at all, but there's a maximum finite thing that the law sets off and we don't follow those rules anymore because that would fall under um, priestly law and it would fall under the people of Israel's governmental law. Thanks for that question though. Anyone else have a final question? Yeah, I mean that's why I gave you the book is is the Bible sexist is a really good start because it's just one chapter in there but then you'll have a whole bunch of follow-ups. Um, also I would say that um, there's a very good book. It's an old book by a man called Ken Bailey who has since died, but it's Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. He was a canon and he um, was a Middle Eastern man. He was the professor of research of Middle Eastern and New Testament studies in Jerusalem. And he helps us to understand Jesus and his parables. And he has a beautiful whole segment on women and digs into the hard passages of scripture. So I would highly recommend that as well. So I would start there. Who's the final question here, yeah. Yeah.
So what was your name? Lydia asked a great question. She said, what about the passage of scripture? I'm going to read you out. Once again, it's really important to go to scripture when we're asking these questions. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it says that husbands are the head of the wise, and I've heard it explained that he's the head and he's over them spiritually. But to me, that doesn't help anything because that means spiritually, am I weaker or am I lower? So she asked a lot of great questions. I'm, I'm trying to recap them. Um, in that once again we want to read everything in its context the whole of ephesians 5 um paul is calling out to the church of ephesus what it looks like to walk in love and what it looks like for us to be submitted to christ what it looks like for us to be imitators of god and how we are laying down our lives both men and women in submission to god and then out of that he says in ephesians um chapter 20 uh, chapter 5 verse 21 which is just before the famous ones where it starts into husbands and wives remember there weren't chapter breaks in paul's letters those are now put in it says submit to one another first out of reverence to christ so it starts with that and then you have wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ and so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands then it goes on to say husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same ways husbands should love their wives as their own bodies i could go on but Paul basically first off sets the whole thing about husbands and wives submitting to themselves out of submitting to one another out of mutual submission to Christ. So we put that in there. And then it does say wives submit to your husbands. But then it says husbands lay down your lives for your wives, right? The way that Jesus laid down his lives, his life, not lives, life for us. I submit to Jesus Christ as a Christian. We all submit to Jesus Christ to, to, um, as Christians, right? Men and women alike. How does Jesus call out this submission to us? How does Jesus have that spring forth out of our lives? He doesn't bludgeon us over the head. He doesn't say, I'm in charge. I am the chief. He laid down his very life on the cross. He sacrificed love. He showed and practiced love in such an amazing and gentle way that it literally calls forth. That's what the spiritual awakening when a Christian comes to know Jesus, a submitting, a independent and voluntary submitting of oneself to Christ. And if you go a few furthers down, Paul, and he loves to do this, right? He goes on these little tangents. He's like, by the way, I'm not talking about marriage anymore. I'm talking about the church. And I'm talking about the Christ, and it's a mystery. So there's something very spiritual. But what I would say is that when a man and a woman, this is partly why it's so important that when you're pursuing marriage or you're looking for marriage, this for me is the highest argument for why if you are a Christian, you should be looking for another Christian, right? It's not impossible to be married to or to date a non-Christian. I dated a person that was not a Christian for a long time. But what it what the Bible calls and sets out is because what they're saying is if you want love that looks like Jesus' love, if you want to practice that and you want that to be the footprint of your marriage and your family, which is love that's hard, it's love that calls for sacrifice, it's love that is preferring someone else, there is no other worldview, there's no other religion that says that love should be shaped by, not by yourself but for somebody else except in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so, yes, women 
submit to your husbands, but husbands, lay down your life for your wife, and that's the way that you guys are going to mutually submit yourselves to Christ, and God will cause his love to bring that alive in our lives. It's a much bigger question, but, but dig into it with a, bit, with a bigger um, lens of what does love really look like, and what does submission really look like in the Godhead. We have the members of the Trinity that all submit to each other, and yet they are co-equal in authority. They are co-equal as persons. They are all equally God. There is not a hierarchy in the Trinity when one is above the other, and yet they all submit to each other. And we are called, when you are a husband and a wife and you are a Christian, to meet submitting ourselves to each other the way that the Trinity does. There's hierarchy there, but it isn't one above the other, like in the Trinity. So good question. I know that there could be a thousand more questions, and actually, as I answer, probably 3,000 more questions are coming to your mind. So go to the RZIM booth and talk to people there. And I am so sorry I can't stay for longer, um, but I have loved being with you guys. Thank you so much for dealing with the heat and me shouting at you, especially down here. I'm so sorry I was shouting. Thank you so much.